perfect person that you talk about, the perfect Anahita, who's never harmed, who hasn't broken a bone, who's good at everything. At some point, I realized I'm becoming so obsessed <laughs> with everything going according to plan, everything being so accurate, and everything being so perfect. Like, whenever I want to make a stupid decision, like the tiniest decision that's not going to have any impacts on my life, I think about it so much. I have this pros and cons list, and then it has a waiting matrix <laughs> so, to sum up the scores, right? So... At some point, I realized, what are you doing with your life? This brings no joy to your life. So you have to take it easy and you have to let yourself be a person as everyone else is. Like No one is thinking about different things as much as I am. It was a long journey of realizing that I am a person. I am allowed to make mistakes and I am allowed to be harmed, right? And it's only through those harms that I learn how to deal with them. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to deal with failure if it comes. So I try to make decisions with, I'm not going to say with less thought, but I try to take it more easily. It came from a long journey of realizing how important it is to accept my weaknesses and the areas where I don't have any knowledge in. Hello everyone, my name is Dean Long and welcome to the podcast Lifeline. In this podcast, I will interview people who are having a positive impact in their community and have a strong message that deserves to be shared. We will dive deeper into their journey becoming a change maker and hopefully you can take away some insights for your own journey. And please do subscribe to Lifeline on YouTube, Apple Podcasts or any platform that you are using. And also you can share this episode with your friends if you like it. It's really what helps me the most. In today's episode, you will meet Anahita Hosseini, who is a multi-talented Iranian youth and a proud generalist who's always the first one to say yes to new things and to take the lead when working on new projects. She shares with us why she enjoys learning as much as possible, how she learned to be social and how to take risks, and how she built her confidence and leadership skills by embracing her vulnerability. She's an economic student, pianist, singer, performing arts addict, and has participated in many international competitions of mathematics and economics since she was 12 years old. She's now studying her master's degree, working at the United Nations Resident Coordinator Office in Iran. She's an incredible volunteer with the Movers Program, a climate advocate, an aspiring entrepreneur, and wondering whether she should keep being good at many things or start becoming the best at one thing. Sorry in advance for some background noise issues. We are always trying our best to record with high quality sound, but it's not always easy. You will notice that it was first recorded live for the Lifeline Live number two. So enjoy this episode and see you in two hours. Okay, anyway, uh, welcome. Hello, I see Afia is already commenting. Um, but yeah, welcome, Anahita. Welcome, everyone. Feel free to comment. I see one comment already. Oh, okay, Linka. Hi, Linka. Um, <laughs> Linka, who was my partner of crowdsourcing questions for Anahita. 
Uh, but yeah, hello, welcome everyone to Lifeline Live number two uh, with Anahita Hosseini, uh, also known as Anahit on Facebook. And I will ask why in this episode. I always, I always wondered. Um, but yeah, no, uh, welcome Anahita. And I always start any episode by sharing a bit how we know each other. Uh, in our case, it's interesting. Uh, I think, I mean, first the disclaimer is I think you are the first Iranian I ever had a proper conversation with. I've met Iranians on a rooftop bar in Shanghai, but we didn't really speak. Um, I mean, like deep conversations. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you're the first one I uh, really met, really had conversation with. Uh, but yeah, we met through UNDP, through Youth Collab. Uh, so I was working a bit with the uh, Iranian office and you were there. And then, yeah, one day you appeared in Movers Program Community. I remember you joined all the workshops possible uh, during one, two weeks, every workshop. You were always there. I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. <laughs> so, yeah, and from then, yeah, you never stopped. Now you are like a very important member of Movers Community. Everyone knows you. And, and yeah, I think I spent this week, uh, this morning, yesterday to stalk everything I could stalk from you. And I think that you make my life easier because your CV is very detailed <laughs> from when, from like, from 2011. So like when you were 10, 10 years old, I think 11. So yeah, I have a lot of details. So hopefully we can go through everything. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a stand-up comedy show. Uh, but yeah, no, baby, just to kickstart, uh, would you like to introduce yourself, who you are, what are you doing these days, or anything you want to share to kickstart? Yeah, so hello, everyone. Hello, Dean Long. Um, thank you for the very detailed <laughs> introduction. Um, so yeah, my name is Anahita Hosseini. But as you mentioned, my Facebook name is Anahit. And the reason why is that in in our home, everyone called me Anahit ever since I was very, very young. Um, so, yeah, this, this was very contagious to the circle of my close friends. Uh, my close friends also call me Anahit. And... And yeah, when I was creating my Facebook account, I think I was in middle school. Um, yeah, and then I was like, yeah, why not? Let's say Anahito Saini, especially that back then I didn't want to be found <laughs> easily on Facebook. So, so I thought, yeah, if I do Anahito Hosseini, it's going to be very easy to find me. Uh, also, I know that there are many, many Anahita Hosseinis on Facebook. So I thought, okay, if I put Anahita Hosseini, they're gone. The right people are going to find me. <laughs> so yeah, that's the story. But but fun fact is that Anahit or Anahit, they're actually names. They're actually names in in Persian. So yeah, whatever. I was born in nineteen so so when i was when you were talking about 2010 or 2011 i was around 12 or 13 years old um and yeah i was born in 1998 but i was reborn many times <laughs> so, so uh, one of uh, in fact 
one of my rebirths was a few weeks ago. So, so yeah. And generally, if I want to talk about myself, I'm. I think being an Iranian woman has played an integral role in who I am and uh, what I'm trying to do, which is not very clear for myself yet. But, <laughs> but yeah, and I studied economics for my undergraduate studies. Now I'm officially a <laughs> master's student of economics, but I'm on a break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on a break and I'm working full time in uh, the UN resident coordinator's office in Iran. And for that reason, I'm going to say that I'm here in my personal capacity and not representing the UN. And before that, I interned for six months in UNDP, which is uh, when we got to know each other on the Youth Collab project. And um, afterwards, I joined the Movers program, which is like one of those highlights in my life. And um, yeah, so that's it. Super happy and excited to be here. And we have already talked about why. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. So yeah, everyone, if you want to hide yourself on Facebook, just remove the last letter of your first <laughs> name. That might be yeah, no. <laughs> Hide yourself from all the hackers. <laughs> but actually, you know, I, I I tried to tag you earlier, and I was like, and I hit and I was like, where is she? Just on your account, I was like, oh yeah, it's Anahit. So actually, it works. <laughs> I was like spending five minutes, like where is she? This could literally become a meme, you know. Like, <laughs> hackers trying to find Anahita, and when they say, "Oh no, Anahit," then they're gonna be like, "Oh no, we can't, we can't find her anymore." <laughs> I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, okay. I saw something similar recently. Okay, it gives me a lot of ideas. Uh, but yeah, before we move to the. Uh, first question. Yeah, I think uh, you have the hello from Afia, from Michael. Hi. Anahita is a hit from Kosoma, from Lamea. Ooh, hello. Uh, and I think, yeah, also, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, what I wanted to say is um, I will speak a lot about your CV today because for me it's a good framework <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to, to prepare all the questions. But I think, you know, what's interesting is I know, I, I would say I know quite well the Anahita, but from your recent volunteering experience, mm -hmm. but the Anahita from your studies or Anahita from your work, actually, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, my CV is only good for fun, random interviews. <laughs> it's not good for job interviews. <laughs> So yeah, we'll explore all of that. And yeah, also like, I think the fact of your rebirth and also you mentioned yeah, Iranian woman, uh, is something we never spoke about. So, uh, hopefully we can speak about it today as well. Uh, but maybe I have so many <laughs> questions I want to start with, but let's, let's, okay, let's start with the first one. I think what I, you know, If I had to introduce Anahita to people, I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, Anahita is someone who does a lot of stuff, um, you know, with, whether it's arts, music, theater, you know, supporting startups, you know, economics. And then I see your CV, you've done Olympiad since you were like 11, like this international competition. I saw it's like around, 
Usually people do Olympia just on one topic, but you did on math, on German, on <laughs> economy. So maybe let's start with this. Were you always so active, so proactive? Why were you all, I mean, if yes, why? If not, like, how did that happen? Yeah, actually, I, I think multitasking is something that everyone would describe me with. <laughs> and, um, well, I think it has to do with my family, sort of. When I, when I think about it and I want to track where this comes from, you know, when I was a child, I was literally a child and I was going to kindergarten. Um, I went to several different classes outside my, even though my kindergarten had so many stuff, we were doing so many things in the kindergarten outside the classroom and, and after hours, I was always taking so many classes. And at the same time, my mom, she's a Persian literature person, uh, and a poet and She taught me Persian poems, and um, at the same time, I went to dance, different dance classes. I did swimming, I did basketball, I, I did even painting. I, I, I still don't think that I can paint, but, but yeah, I, I did painting and uh, roller skating and all of these stuff. And this continued over the course of school, then primary school, middle school, high school. And, and all the time I was starting new things. So, for instance, I remember when I went to the first year of high school, I was learning um, the system of my school was we had foreign languages as, uh, as one of the classes that we had to take. And... If you already had reached a level in English, you could choose between French and German. And I was already learning French outside school. So I thought, yeah, why not go with German? And then I started with German. And, and my parents were like, no, you should focus on something and continue doing until you like get to a good level. I was like, no, I want to start doing German. And then I started with German. The year after that was the International German Olympiad and stuff like that. Even in middle school, I, I, I was always good at math. So I joined uh, the team of my school for the Inter International Science and Mathematics Olympiad. And after that, there were so many other math Olympiads that I did. And after that was the German one. And in, in university, I was doing econ. And again, I joined the team of <laughs> you know, the econ Olympia. So, uh, and at the and all all um, you know, in high school, I did so many things outside school. My school was actually one that already had so many extracurricular activities. So everyone was involved in so many things. But even then, I I put extra pressure on myself to do more <laughs> outside school, and um. I, I think I always, because I was lost in high school and I had to choose my major, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I didn't even know if I wanted to do go through the math stream or the sciences stream or social sciences or art. I couldn't even choose between them. So 
Um, and because the education system in my country doesn't allow for a lot of flexibility, we can't pick courses. Uh, so extracurriculars sort of were a way for me to find out what I really liked. And the reason why I always started new things was because I was trying to explore. And going back to my family, my mom and dad, they both studied computer engineering. That's where they met. And afterwards, my mom pivoted to Persian literature. My dad went to pursue um, management, then law. And so there, everyone in the family is doing so many things. <laughs> so I think it's sort of the family culture. And yeah, I think that's why. And even despite all of the exploration, I'm still not sure um, what I want to do in the future. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> But I think it's interesting to... I don't know. For me, started, you, you said you started to explore, even if it's not conscious and maybe it's your parents who just send you to like, you know, all this stuff. But from kindergarten, so like three, three years old, I think it's pretty cool. But I think something interesting as well is, I mean, you said you want to do so many things, but you know, to my understanding of an Olympiad is you only go to an Olympiad if you are good. Like you're, if you're like bad in math, you don't go to a math Olympiad. <laughs> And I saw, you know, it's, I mean, you travel also the world doing this Olympiad. I mean, it was in Indonesia and stuff. Yeah. So you do a lot of things, but you do everything quite well. <laughs> so I did, I did like, no, how does it happen? Like, is it, is it, you know, your, I think I understand like your parents give you the freedom to do anything you want and they encourage you. But do you also feel like pressure either from them or from yourself to be the best, like in everything? Well, I, I have to admit that my family is a pretty perfectionist family and that's because in their own way, each of them are <laughs> perfect. So, so, um, so there is some pressure, but the pressure is in my head. It's not directly coming from them. You know, being a part of this environment makes you feel like you have to shoot for the stars. And um, and I think at some point, um, it's very interesting. As I said, I was reborn a couple of weeks ago. I met someone and they were trying to analyze me. <laughs> and, and, and he was saying, what is this obsession with perfectionism and stuff like that? I was like, yeah, tell me about it. And then he said, but you know, you are perfect. So that's why you're trying to um, be that way. And, and I have to say, it's not like my, my parents are pressuring me into being like the best. But, and I'm not a competitive person at all. I'm, I'm not a competitive person. Usually if it's a competition, I, I try to open the way for other people to join. <laughs> but but yeah i think at some point you have to leave what you're doing because you have to focus on something else if you want to be the best and i've never been the best in math or in i don't know econ or 
German Olympiad, you know? Um, because there's a curve, which is the return curve. I don't know if you see me in a mirrored way or like this way, but <laughs> let's say this is the graph. You know, the slope is getting lower and lower. And if you want to, the, the effort it takes to progress this much at higher levels is more. And the time investment, the effort investment. So I, I could never be the person who is willing to put the extra effort to become the best. So for instance, I play the piano and I've been playing the piano for 18 years. But I think if I had put the, if I was willing to put the extra effort after, I don't know, 10 years, I could have become a professional pianist. But, but now I'm a good piano player, but I'm not a professional pianist, right? It's because I want to do different things at a good level, but I don't want to be the best. I don't see a point in it. So, yeah, it's mainly in my head rather than coming from my family. But, yeah, I think... I totally see. It's a logarithmic curve, right? Yeah. So, if we... <laughs> <laughs> But Man. I think for me, there's, there's still um, there's still the you know threshold between. I mean, you could do a lot of things and and be. Because for me, I mean, the best, of course, it's you know. I consider that people who go to Olympiads in Indonesia are still part of the best, at least in their generation or at your age. You know, you could do piano, but just like this, right? But you still, you know, shoot videos, publish on Instagram, piano every day and stuff like this. I mean, there's still, for me, there's still, you are not like, um, yeah, you are not, uh, trying to think about the name of a mathematician. <laughs> you are not, uh, wait, I know this. You're not like <laughs> Pythagore. <laughs> wait, this is, no, you know. <laughs> Anyway, maybe I say it wrong. But you know, you're not, of course, you're not like, but I think, okay, let's restart. But you're still good at everything. And I think it's still, I would say, better than average on, on, on many things that you do. I find it very interesting. And I just wonder, you know, like you said, okay, I could have become a professional pianist. Did you ever ask yourself, if you want it to be, because I know, that, for example, I, when you speak with good athletes, at some point they have to decide, like, will I become professional or will I just continue my studies or whatever? Did you ask yourself this for different things that you were doing? Yeah, yeah, I did. I, <clears throat> I ask myself that every single day. Because there are so many things that I'm doing, and I'm like, <laughs> I have to ask that question for each of them. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I did. I actually, um, I, I, I don't know which one. I, for piano, I have. And very early on, I realized it, this is not something that I want to pursue. And, and you know, I, I don't know, maybe I don't see it in myself that I'm go I'm a very lazy person. Okay. <laughs> you have to know that I'm a super lazy person. And I don't see myself as someone who's willing to put that much effort for the extra mile. 
right? So for the piano, that's definitely not one of the things that I'm willing to put the extra mile. For for instance, for my studies, now one of the things that I'm discussing with my professors, um, I was discussing actually before going on a break for my studies. Um, one of them was saying, if you pursue economics as a career, like academically, uh, you're going to become one of the best, you know, one of the top, those names that you can't remember, right? <laughs> and, and, and I was thinking, I was talking to my parents actually about this, and I was like, I don't want to become that person. Regardless, in this case, regardless of the effort that it takes, which is a lot, you have to invest your whole life into it if you want to become an economist. Even the name of being called an economist has so many things with it, you know? You have to invest your whole life. And I'm not willing to do that. And I don't want to become that person. So, um, yeah, I do economic research. I have actually worked as an economic researcher, and I still do. But, but to be able to contribute that much to a whole field of science is just not not me, you know. <laughs> and yeah, I prefer um, engaging in different activities, building different teams, and contributing, adding value to each of them in each of these areas and I think being a generalist maybe if that's what it's called uh, has its downsides because you know in your career at some point you have to be an expert in some field and but for me at this age I'm too early it's too early for me to decide um, what kind of expertise I want to have uh, and I asked that question about piano, about theater. I'm about theater. I'm not sure actually yet, because it's one of the interests that I've kept ever since I was a child. Um, whenever they ask me what what do you want to become when you grow up, I I said I want to be an actress. Sometimes I, I said I want to become a firefighter, a pilot, but but the interest in be, being an actress never changed. It's the the only constant in my life. So so about that, I'm not sure yet. But yeah, about many other ones, I am. <laughs> but it's in, it's interesting. Um, like you know, I I I was speaking. I interviewed a guy called Yama for episode three i think of lifeline and he's also a guy when you meet him you understand this guy is doing like 20 things at the same time <laughs> and then i was like you know how like you know same like similar question and he was like you know i'm because i felt like you know i think the yeah the not debate but the generalist versus specialist is very interesting we speak a lot about it with linka as well um but yeah, i felt like you know when and it's linked to Linka's question. Um, she asked a question. Let me just put it here. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, no, I felt like when, uh, you do so many things, you can develop what's called, you know, economies of scope. So not uh, economies of scale, but you know, maybe competencies or skills you develop in theater that you can use again in facilitation or skills that you, uh, use 
in mass that you can use in well, I don't know, but in another 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 sector. Um, but yeah, mail to link to link as questions. I'll just read it out loud. But uh, as you are being knowledgeable about so many things, is there any experience that you apply multiple discipline of subjects to solve one issues? Um, I don't know if I would call it an experience, but I think the general skills that one learns in through different things um, are transferable. Most of the skills are transferable, actually, in my opinion, unless they're technical. And I'm not very interested in technical stuff <laughs> so that's why that's why actually I think I'm doing different things now that I can think of it um, so for instance if you do theater one of the things that you learn is improvisation and I think at the essence of improv is being attentive and being open so you when you're doing improv in theater, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't have any plan. You just have to pay very good attention to what other people are doing. You have to be open and accept what other people are doing. So when someone in improv does something, you can't undo that. It's already done. And the audience has seen what's happened. You just have to respond to that. And I think this action and response, the the way you are able to be open and receptive and attentive and um, sort of accept what's happened paves the way for um, the future of anything that you're doing. So in theater, that's for acting, but in real life, it's for dealing with scary situations. In, at work, it's for dealing with urgent situations. I don't know, in many things, um, this is something, this is an example, I think, and a very important example. I, I was telling you about interviews um, <laughs> before we started the broadcast, and I think the way I embraced the nature of improv in theater helped me in job interviews, actually. <laughs> And, and yeah, I think that's one of them. But these, after a while, uh, when you experience this through uh, in different areas, it's not just theater where I learned how important improv is. I learned that at work. I learned that in real life. It becomes a part of your personality. So, um, so it, one of them was being. Um, accepting what's happened and being paying a lot of attention and being responsive. Another one is, for instance, problem solving. I think problem solving is at the core of my being <laughs> because, um, and that comes from math. That comes from having the background in math and um, being able to break things down in, into smaller problems and then connecting the dots and having a plan on how to solve it. But this also applies to different aspects. It's not just about math. It's about life. Uh, and on a daily basis, we, we deal with problems. We deal, deal with 
hard decisions that we have to make. And um, yeah, I think problem solving is also one of them. But as I said, these are all transferable. If we put aside all the technical skills, like a specific software you have to learn for your field or something like that, all the other uh, skills are transferable. And the fact that uh, I did so many different things actually helped me understand the importance of each and every one of them. Uh, because every time I did something, it was proven to me that what you had learned in another area is helping you in another area, right? Um, so yeah, actually, and and just a, a story from a couple of years ago, I did an interview uh, with someone I had met in my university. Um, they were like from this association of, I don't know, exporters or something like that. <laughs> and they had met me in my university in a fair or something. And they, they invited me for a job interview. And I went there and the guy spent an hour and a half on that interview just to talk to me and uh, went through my CV and was like exactly what you said. You're, you're do doing so many stuff and that that appears as someone who is not good at any of them or someone who is not able to concentrate on anything. So at some point you have to narrow it down and you have to focus and uh, you, you, you appear as someone who is not committed, right? And I said, I, I do theater, <laughs> but I don't do it randomly. I, theater helped me become a courageous person. And that's also because of improv and stuff like that. But the things I learned in one of them is not just specific to that field. It's the person I am at work is not independent of the person I am in theater. And um, the things that I learn are all shaping me as a person, as a being. And then that guy was very impressed. <laughs> so if you ever get pro tip, if you ever get stuck in an interview, <laughs> try to connect everything in your CV. <laughs> yeah. No, but that's so cool. I always speak about improv as well. Because um, I think it's improv is a good philosophy for life and for the workplace as well. And for everyone, I, let me <laughs> share about improv. Because for me, it's such <laughs> exciting. I was speaking about it yesterday as well. But for me, there's two principles very important in improv. One is the yes and, so the one you mentioned, mm -hmm. accepting things and building on it because you cannot undo, yeah. you cannot undo what has happened on stage and you cannot say, you cannot refuse it either. Otherwise, the scene <laughs> is dead. <laughs> it's like then everyone yeah. looks stupid. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I think it's a bit, you know, a bit your your life philosophy, you know, like, you know, I, uh, from what I saw with movers or from what we can see on your CV of everything you said, you know, it feels like, okay, we give you something and you're like, okay, I'll just try. But I've never seen no coming from you or, you know, this kind of thing, always trying, um, accepting and building on what on the experience to learn something new that could 
again in the end, like transfer to your work, to your life or whatever. And the second is, um, also related to what you said, but you know, in improv, people always say, make your partner shine. Um, because it's not, improv is not about you. It's about the story. It's about the stage. And if you make sure that whatever your partner says is good, then the scene will be good. Then the partner will do it for you. And it's what you said a bit as well before. Like, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I don't necessarily want to be the best, but I prefer opening doors for people to be the best. Um, so yeah, everyone, <laughs> actually, I was thinking to do some sort of online improv workshop. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> but I wanted to come back related to that. You said, um, Improv, but theater in general and arts made like taught you to be courageous. Would love to hear more about that. Uh, <laughs> um, let me start by saying that I'm not a risk taker and I haven't been a risk taker, I don't know, ever since I was a child. And the reason why. I wasn't a risk taker. I, I grew up in a family where my mom and dad were opposites, complete opposites, right? So my mom is a total risk taker. My dad is not at all a risk taker, right? And growing up, I I picked up personality traits from each of them. And I chose being a risk averse from my dad. Um... And at some point, I realized being a risk averse is having, because, you know, the concept of being a risk averse is to avoid loss, right? Even in economics, we have, like, so many theories about this. <laughs> and, and actually, being a risk averse stems from being a loss averse. And... It was, I think, in high school, I realized being a risk averse is having more losses for me than it's having gains. And in theater, I was doing a couple of workshops on, um, we, we were imitating animals for these workshops. And, well, when you imitate an animal, you are physically... Um, not able to do many things that animals do because of the form of your body. I don't know the way your bones are, many of them. And I remember there was a scene, um, there was an improv, actually. There was an improv and me and someone else, we were uh, trying to pick one of the scenes from Otello and imitate the characters with animals. And in that scene, my partner was killing me, right? He was, like, choking me to death. And I remember, it's very interesting. Still, I don't know how, how I didn't literally die. Because, because he was literally choking me to death. And at that very moment, I was literally dying. But I survived that. And this happens in theater so often. If you if you um, become independent of your actual self and become the character that you're playing, 
if you're so present in that scene at that moment, you not that you don't realize you're there is pain. <laughs> you know, it's not nothing you can deny. <laughs> the pain is there, but you survive that pain. And there were times when I was very scared to do some some stuff like some moves. I don't know to fall on my knees or I'm I'm gonna break my knee. And fun fact, so I, I haven't broken a single bone in my body. Even when I, when I was a child, I didn't do many um, risky things. Um, and in theater, I realized you can take those risks because they give you the space. Um, and if something bad happens, it happens, right? You can accept that and you can deal with it and you can move on. And then this... Uh, I'm still not a risk taker, but I'm not that extreme risk averse anymore. So I'm willing to take some risks in my life. For instance, going on a break in university is something that the Anahita from 10 years ago wouldn't ever do. <laughs> it would not even be an option in my mind. But being able to come out of the comfort zone and being willing to take some risks, however tiny they are, that's something that I learned from theater, and I owe it to all my theater teachers. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I think definitely I think the safe space you mentioned, like the safety net, yeah, it's so important because improv as well, you know, I mean, I felt like you, I mean, you spoke about physical risk, but risk is, can be about, you know, your reputation, can be about exactly. financial loss. And yeah. in improv, remember just the fact of, you know, imitating an animal, it's difficult because you make fun of yourself, etc., etc. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I feel like theater gives you the, you know, safety net to do that. Yeah, and it's another transferable skills, right? Because then in real life you make more fun of yourself. You don't take yourself <laughs> yeah. too seriously. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I start to see. I mean, it's not new, right? But when people do theater very young, like twenty, like you can see, yeah, like you know, usually these people are like, you know very confident in public speaking and in like so. Yeah, I think it's when we all have, I think no one has kids in, 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 uh, in the stream. But yeah, it's a good thing to think about. But let me say this. I think, um, I don't know if it's just me or the society that I lived in or the family that I, or, or just it's an international thing. Being vulnerable is not something that is advertised, right? And it's not something that you count as a strength. You're being vulnerable. That's the definition of being weak, right? But, but I think being able to allow yourself to be vulnerable is a huge strength. And that is something that you exercise in theater. You let yourself be prone to losses, to damages, to harm. And that makes you stronger. Like the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger thing. <laughs> I think being able to allow yourself to be vulnerable is a huge strength. And I'm trying to exercise that in my real life as well. I, um, be it in relationships, 
with the people around you, with your friends, just always being the person who knows it all, who is the strong, uh, untouchable person, or I don't know, something like that, because that's the person I was. I used to be that person. You can ask around, right? You can ask triple A, but I'm trying to take it easy because I'm always too hard on myself to take it easy and allow myself to be weak whenever I am weak or to express that even. And I think that helps the self-exploration and growth journey. So even if theater helps you be this confident person, the confidence comes from the fact that you know where your weaknesses are and you're willing to accept them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's very interesting to know when you say, okay, how to, you know, when you realize this in theater, how to bring that to real life. It's such an important thing as well. And no, when, when you mentioned like before you were like this, I know everything person, like what happened? Is it is it the story of the German Olympiad? Um, no, no, that's actually the story of one of my. Um, the story of the German Olympiad is the story of me being an antisocial and transforming to <laughs> a social person. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, welcome back to that just after. <laughs> <laughs> but but um. No, this is actually, it doesn't have a very specific event that made me realize this. I think at some point, um, maybe maybe the story of being an antisocial and then becoming a social person had something to do with it. But this came later on when I realized, you know, that perfect person that you talk about, the perfect Anahita who... Um, who's never harmed, who hasn't broken a bone, who's good at everything or stuff like that. Um, at some point, I realized I'm becoming so obsessed <laughs> with everything being going according to plan, everything being so accurate and everything being so perfect. Even like whenever I want to make a stupid decision like this tiniest decision that's not gonna have any impacts on my life i think about it so much i have this pros and cons list i and then it has a waiting matrix <laughs> to sum up the scores right so at some point i realize what are you doing with your life this is not you know this has this brings no joy to your life even if the outcome of that decision after thinking about it for several years is good, it's going to be good, but with so much depression and anxiety, right? So, so you have to take it easy and you have to let yourself be a person as everyone else is. Like, no one is thinking about different things as much as I am. Um so at some point, I it wasn't a point, it was a long journey of realizing that I am a person, I am allowed to make mistakes, and I am allowed to be harmed, right? And it's only through those harms that I learn 
how to deal with them. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to deal with failure if it comes. And uh, so I, I, I tried to make um, decisions with, I'm not going to say with less thought, but I tried to take it more easily. And with my relationships with different people, I tried to move away from that Anahita who was the know-it-all and who, um, who, I don't know, maybe it, I still am that person that many people go to <laughs> for making decisions or uh, advice, but I'm not afraid to say I don't know anymore, right? Because I don't have to know everything. I don't have to be the expert in everything. And, and now I'm not afraid to admit that. It's, it came from a long journey of realizing how important it is to accept my weaknesses and the areas where I don't have any knowledge in or, yeah, all of that. <laughs> you know, in your, in your journey, I know so many art performances, so many Olympias and stuff. Is there, because I think I, I really love the, when you mentioned about failure, like not be being afraid to fail, I think it's important to have as early as possible, I would say. <laughs> But I wonder, you know, because I, I think Olympiad in the end, it's a competition, right? I mean, this is, uh, like, it's like Olympic Games for of math. <laughs> 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 But you know, did, you, did you experience any failure during this competition where you, you, know, you couldn't sleep? Or you were like, oh my God, why like, did I didn't get the gold medal or anything no actually i think the olympiads were never that important in my life however hard it is to believe <laughs> because they happen so often it's not not easy to believe that they weren't important to me <laughs> but but yeah i think Not the math ones, definitely not not the math ones. The German ones, I did well in the Olympiad, so it was a great achievement. But for this, uh, the, the German Olympiad takes place every two years, right? And um, after the one that I attended, um, the one in, that was in 2014, the one in 2016, I had to go through the national round. Uh, to participate and in the national round I wasn't able to be among the top two people to go to the international I was the third and that was a sad moment for me admittedly but it wasn't something that I couldn't move on you know it was it wasn't that it, it didn't have that much bad impact on me but the exact same year I experienced so many failures. I was having a rough time in 2015 and 2016 because it was the last year of high school, which is actually not the high school. It's the pre-university year, as we call it in Iran. It's the 12th grade. And in the 12th grade, I, um, I took a very huge risk. Um, so I have to explain the 12th grade in Iran as as there is Gaokao in China, we have a concours in Iran for entrance to university. And 
the 12th grade, even though it has its own books and it has like examinations and stuff, is dedicated to, to prepping for that exam. And I didn't want to take that exam. I was like, I don't want to study here. I, I want to go study abroad and I'm not going to go to school from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and then study till midnight because of the, the stupid exam, right? So I, I I decided not to go to school and that was a huge risk. Actually, my, my parents were close to having a heart attack. <laughs> and I decided not to do that. And I said, yeah, I'm gonna go study on my own, the material of the 12th grade and take the exams and I'm gonna go, go get good grades. And at the same time, I'm gonna take an English exam and apply to universities in the US and the UK and go study abroad. And that year I applied to a couple of top schools in the US and I didn't get into any of them. I mean, now I realize why, because, well, they were top schools. <laughs> what, what was I thinking? But, but I got to actually good schools in the UK, but because they weren't offering any scholarships and the exchange rate was high, I was not able to afford the tuition fees. So about one month before the national entrance exam to universities, I realized that I have to take this exam, right? So in 2016, around spring, summer, I had been rejected from the universities that I wanted to go to. And I, I didn't get into the team of the International German Olympiad. And there were other stuff going on in the family. I don't know. There was so many stuff at the same time going on. It was such a bad year. I can't stress this enough. <laughs> but then I, uh, with minimum effort, I, because I'm a lazy person, <laughs> as I say, um, I took the national entrance exam and then got into univers a good university to study econ. But yeah, I mean, that year was one of the most terrible failures of my life because I also got really low grades in the actual exams of school. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was one of the huge failure years of my life, which took a very long time to move on from. I think the first year of university, I had depression from all that background. Uh, and it took me a while to realize, yeah, it wasn't meant to be. And uh, now I'm glad, maybe, that I didn't get into those schools. Why are you glad now? I mean, what Because made you move on after one year, after your first year of uni? Um, I think moving on is a process. So it's not like there's one cause for moving on. But once you realize that this has happened and there's nothing, you, you can't undo it like it's an improv, right? <laughs> you can't undo what has happened and you have to live your life. You have to um, opt for new opportunities. You have to continue living a life and follow, I don't know, your dreams. I really didn't have dreams as per se, but... Um, 
you have to find new opportunities, better opportunities to elevate yourself and to grow. So after the first year of uni was a disaster because I didn't like the environment. And also I had the background from the last year of school. Um, but along the way, I learned, okay, I, I, I'm starting to like this major. And this major is actually helping me and being actually in this university. Even though it wasn't the university I was looking for, um, is starting to help me better explore what I want to do. And there are so many good opportunities coming up because I'm here. <laughs> if I was somewhere else, these opportunities wouldn't have been there. And um, now, let's say if I, uh, now looking back, if I had gone to the US or the UK, I would not have gone to know you, right? And many other good things that came up, like the Movers program or where I work right now, I'm pretty sure none of them would have been there if I had gone to uh, a different university or had studied a different major even. Um, so this is looking from an optimistic perspective, but the moving on thing was just realizing that this has happened and I have to move on. No, that's, I think, yeah, it's um, because in the end you, you know, wh whether you have dreams or not, you, the university you are in is just the medium. It's not the end in itself, but it's whatever you do during your university days that will build what you want to do after. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, oh my, I have so many questions, but I really, <laughs> I want, I want, <laughs> I want to come back to first before, okay, before we move to your, you know, twenties years, um, <laughs> you can share like the you know how did you pass from anti-social to social during the german olympiad and can you share like what is a german olympiad also like what 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 do you need to do during a german olympiad so we've been talking for something for so long and no one had any idea what it was so for the the german olympiad thing was um that itself wasn't my transformation. That was the result of my transformation. So to, to give you some background, growing up, I was this kid <laughs> who, <laughs> who was always, Anahita is different, right? I, I, I think most of my friends always hated me because, because their parents used to point at Anahita and say, look at Anahita and learn from Anahita. I, I, I never wanted that to happen, but it was just the way it was. Um, and when I was growing up, I had no friends or even the friends that I had really didn't enjoy being around me and I didn't enjoy being around them because I, I simply did not enjoy being around people my age. So whenever we went to gathering, even even though I was in primary school, I was like seven or eight years old, I always hung out with adults. I, I sat with a group of men discussing politics or I don't know, stuff like that, you know? I, I never went to the room where children were playing. Um, 
And I think this this was a two-way street. They also didn't enjoy being around me. And when I went to middle school, my, and I wasn't good at teamwork. In primary school, I was terrible at teamwork. Whenever we wanted to do team projects or stuff, I was so bossy uh, that I annoyed everyone. <laughs> Literally, I think everyone hated being in the group where Anaita was the team member. <laughs> But when I went to middle school, um, my school put a lot of attention to teamwork and leadership. So everyone had to learn to teamwork, right? Because it was the at the core of what the school philosophy was about, I think. And in every class, in every project, we were in teams. And I was having such a hard time because in primary school, I can say many of the students weren't performing well or they didn't have the necessary uh, skills to lead a team or to plan for the team and stuff like that. But when I went to middle school, everyone was talented. Everyone was good. Everyone had the potential to be the team leader. And being the bossy Anahita and the antisocial Anahita was try starting to uh, have its consequences. It was starting to hit me in the face, right? <laughs> and, and because the school was putting so much attention, I had to learn how to teamwork. I had to learn how to socialize. And, and I started learning. It was the self uh exploration journey from realizing who i was and realizing why that person what being that person is not good and realizing who i want to be as a human being um so after three years in middle school i learned to be a more social person a better team player um uh, a leader who is not a bossy person, right? And I remember I, it was between middle school to the first year of high school. I, I was probably 13. I called many of my friends or met them in person to apologize for, for the person that I was, right? And, um, I literally did that. <laughs> and when I went to high school, I could see that journey yielding fruit. Because I was performing better in teams, I was leading teams and more people were enjoying working with me. And I was enjoying being part of teams more than I was enjoying working independently. And I think the highlight was during the German Olympiad, where um, wh where they gave me the fairness prize for <laughs> being, uh, I don't know how to explain this, but I don't know, being a socially pleasant person, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, or for helping other people, being a good team player and stuff like that. Um, so, and that's why that prize 
is like the greatest achievement of my life even now after so many things that have happened yeah so it's important to me because it shows me after so many years of suffering literally suffering and being willing to change and then changing going through all of that um it's not the recognition actually that matters to me it's the fact that you know the recognition comes from the fact that you have actually changed right so that's like a reflection of reality it's not reality itself and that reality is very important to me um and makes me super happy um but about the german olympiads <laughs> the german <laughs> olympiad is like an event it's like a two-week event where participants, two participants per country, um, get to the final round, which is in Germ- which is held in Germany, and there they have independent and team pro- projects. So every every two years it takes place, and for each uh, each one there is a different subject or a different group of subjects and uh the participants my year it was i think the environment um art or culture and another one and we had to make a wallpaper with on the topic that we chose so, so we had to write essays in that wallpaper and take pictures and stick them. And uh, there was also another round of independent work. I, I can't remember. But there was also a team project. And in this team project, we had to um, prepare a show which could take the form of a talk show, a theater show, an improv and many other things and be creative and talk about that topic. Um, and then there was an, another round where we had to describe a picture and in German and someone would draw what we were describing. They weren't seeing the original picture. Uh, and that was also happening in teams. Yeah, I think I'm missing something here, but it was so many years ago. It was seven years ago. Um, yeah, so that was like the Olympiad, but at, uh, the Olympiad was taking place in three different levels. So the level that I was participating in was the A2 level in the European language framework. So A2 is for beginners usually, and it was like one year after I, w- I started learning German. Uh, the second level was more intermediate advanced and the third level was advanced. So that year I was in the beginner's team, the beginner's level. And the year, the two year after that, where I didn't get into the final round was I was participating for the, the rather advanced team, which is when I didn't get in. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. I saw German Olympiad is, I gather, German-speaking students, and you need to translate text in a competitive <laughs> way. <laughs> That's like a big exam. No, it was very interesting. I was actually surprised how creative 
uh, mm. the way the Olympiad was designed. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds really cool. It's like a mini no startup weekend. Not focused on startup, <laughs> but any creative project. Yeah. Um, but no, I think it's, you know, it's very interesting the way you speak about how you learn to take risk, how you learn to be vulnerable, how you learn to be more social. It's, you learned it, right? I mean, feel like you are conscious that you actually learned it. And that you, you know, you said risk. Okay, I, 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 I mean, from what I understood, you learn risk because you know you have better outcomes and you lose less. I feel like teamwork was similar. You know, okay, now it's part of curriculum. I need to be a become a better teamwork team player. Uh, so I will learn this. So it's very interesting um, to see that, and also that how both are linked together. Now, when you say, yeah, I, I, I apologize to everyone, it's a form of vulnerability. Um, and it's a form yeah, to improve your leadership and stuff. It's, it's interesting. Everything happened at the same time, but everything is linked together. Yeah, it's and, like pieces of a puzzle that first you cannot see, but when you look back, you see things fitting. And and this is something that keeps happening in life, you know. That was like a highlight I told you about. But but now even um, I'm trying to learn to embrace things the way they are every single day. It's not like at some point I learned and I accepted to accept. It's something that is hard to implement in real life. It's easier said than done. And every day you encounter situations where things happen, you have to accept, you have to let yourself be vulnerable, take risks. And on a daily basis, you learn all of these things and you trial and error on what works, what doesn't work. And then tomorrow it's a new day all over again. And, and I think um, things eventually, even if it takes a lot of time, start fitting together, then that, I don't know if, I still don't know if I believe in this or not, but then you realize that there is a meant to be and things happen for a reason. Life proves you, proves to you that that's the case, but you still deny, you still <laughs> make mistakes and you still don't trust the universe. And then again, life slaps you in the face and says, uh-huh, there, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a, because you, you, you are a framework person, a uh, structured person, but do you have, you know, because you were mentioning when you were younger, you had this weighted matrix, you know, to choose a course or what. But yeah, what are your frameworks to either decision making or to, you said, you know, try and error, but what, how do you know when you did something and it's not what you're supposed to do or it's an error or you need to move on or improve it? Oh, it's, it's very difficult. I think I'm still trying to learn that. Uh, I still have that matrix. Um, and because it's not, a, it's not something that you can generalize, every specific case has, has its own matrix because you have different criteria. Every, in, in every single case but like the way I do uh, make decisions is I I make a matrix of criteria 
because they're the decisions are usually picking and picking an option from a pool of options, right? I I list the criteria, I list the weights, then score them, score each option for each criteria, and then sum up the scores. And then that's just the first stage. The second stage is you you see the scores, but you don't accept <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> like the doubt moment, right? So you say, did I score them correctly or not? This score, total score doesn't seem right. And then you either comply with your own matrix or you don't. You make a totally different decision. You go with your heart or something like that. But then you see the outcome. And and I think something that I was talking to my uncle about a couple of weeks back was we spent so much time and we get anxiety from all of these decisions. And in the end, the decisions that we invest so much time and effort on are not going to have the tiniest impact on what happens in the future. Um, but rather the embracing of opportunities that come along, those are the key moments in life. And this is some, this is like a hypothesis that if it's true, it undermines every kind of problem-solving method or, I don't know, life, life coaching system that is in place, right? Um, so with regards to realizing if I made the right choice or not, I think even when you see the outcome, you can't tell if you made the right choice or not because life is still going on and you still don't know them the actual impact that it has on your life path. So it's always too soon to tell if you made the right choice or not. But something that I have come to learn is no matter what decision you, you make, because each of them are a learning opportunity, um, even if you made the wrong decision, you made the right choice, <laughs> right? So, yeah, that's something that I've learned and I'm trying to implement. So if I want to respond to your question, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's funny because I, I, for me, what for episode 100, when Linka interviews me, but I, I when, when I was 20, 20, 21, I had to take decision, which was, Either I uh, join this business school or either I retake the exam next year. The concours, as you said in, in yeah. French word. <laughs> um, yeah. but, you know, I didn't know. So I, I, I slept on it a few days. And then uh, the father of my best friend, he just told me, whatever decision you take is the best decision. So just take a decision. <laughs> but yeah, and, and just, you know, yes, and, and just build on it. And things for me, since then, it really made me more chill in terms of taking decisions. And, and as you mentioned, I really love what you said. Things might have outcomes immediately or in five years or in 10 years, or like you never know when it can have an impact. So I think for me, this is super important. But of course, when the younger we are, we don't know this yet. 
or we don't know because it, the time frame has been so short, you don't know that it will have an impact. Uh, so yeah, I really love what you said. And um, maybe yeah, to move on, maybe something that uh, really strong about you is, you know, your desire to become a social entrepreneur, to support aspiring social entrepreneurs. So far, we haven't spoken about that. So I feel like it's something recent. So how did you discover this world of social entrepreneurship, of startups? Um, well, so my the first encounter <laughs> of me and the world of startups and entrepreneurship was during my undergraduate studies. I had a professor who was old, but very up-to-date with the world of entrepreneurship and startups. And he was actually um, supporting an accelerator or one of our alumni was the CEO of an accelerator and they partnered together to hold this startup weekend and boot camps in our university. And that's sort of when I learned the ABC, let's say, of this world. And then I, I kept in touch with some of the mentors of uh, that accelerator and were still in touch. They had their businesses. They had trialed and errored several times and still they were willing to do it. So that happened and I slept on it. <laughs> I didn't take any action. <laughs> but at, it, at the back of my mind, I mean, even like before that, I'm always the person who comes up with ideas. So ideation is one of my strong suits. I remember in, in middle school, I was part of a community where we had to, had to be, we had to be part of a community and we had to have a project and present it at the end of the year. So for that year, I chose to join the industrial design club where we, which was sort of toy design. So each group designed a toy and um, we first we had to brainstorm on what toy we want, which age group and stuff like that, then design the prototype and then make the prototype and all of that. And so that was the sparking moment of learning that I like creating things. I like bringing ideas into reality. I love the brainstorming part. I love it because you have the freedom. There are no limits. Then you start uh, applying the limits and then making, making something viable, making something feasible. And then designing that and then actually making it. So at that, that year, I realized, I think I'm somewhere, <laughs> sometime, I'm going to become this person who brings an idea into reality and makes a product. So this was always at the back of my mind. And uh, on a daily basis, I have this notebook where I write my ideas. And many of them are product ideas, actually. And um, so when I went to that startup weekend or boot camp, 
uh, I learned the ABC of how this journey takes place and, um, and many other things like market research and stuff like that. And when I went to UNDP and I learned about Youth Collab and the, about the concept of social entrepreneurship, um, I realized this is something that I had no idea existed, but it was there. You know, it's like saying, you know, your eyes are closed, you're somewhere and you're in heaven, but you don't know you're in heaven. Then you open your eyes or someone tells you you are in heaven, <laughs> right? So the social entrepreneurship for me was the same. I, I, that's where I was. That's what I wanted to do, but I didn't know about the concept and learning about that and realizing that my mission in life is to serve the people around me or is to serve the society I live in or not just the society I live in. Actually, I, my, my more ambitious mission is to connect people from around the world and serve that global community. Uh, and that background of ideation and product design and all of that uh, made me realize that this is sort of the end game, maybe. <laughs> so I have not taken any action on it yet. But, but the realization was the first step, I think. And yeah, and after seeing so many people and movers and from Youth Collab, who are taking action in their societies in Asia Pacific with similar cu cultures, with similar limitations, sort of gave me hope and motivation to pursue this. Yeah, I think it uh, transitioned super well to <laughs> this link. We're like, okay, let's ask a lot of questions about Uber's program. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I think it's so important to be able to put words, you know, social entrepreneurship. I know I've seen, even for me, the aha moment of someone explain, and it's a simple concept, right? Enterprise that wants to solve a social environmental issue. <laughs> but if no one tells you, you have no idea that it's a thing. And then someone yeah. tells you and you're like, oh my God, okay, this is what I've been exploring, but I didn't know there was a concept. <laughs> for me, it's very important to put words on stuff and that people outside also help support uh, other people who like, you know, are in heaven, but close their eyes. Um, but yeah, so link to that. Uh, so now, like, you know, you've been with Movers for a year, I think. Have you celebrated no. your one year anniversary? <laughs> no? No. <laughs> I joined in February. Oh, oh, it feels like you've been here for, for so long. <laughs> Time is so your six months anniversary. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe. And I mean, it's related to movers, but in general, I'm curious, you know, like what? I mean, you've been, you joined six months, you, you stick with the community, you are very active, you mentor new volunteers, you organize a lot of workshops. No, what makes you join this community? What makes you stick to it also? Because, you know, as in movers or in life, we see so many things happening. Like, why do we choose to join this group and why do we stay? 
think for me that's an interesting thing to understand. Uh, well, for movers specifically, I think. Uh, <laughs> I I I think there are different aspects. So one of them is the community itself. I think in one of the onboarding calls, I explained this to people who are no joiners. Um, that when I joined Movers after having been in university for four years and not having felt as a part of a community, not the sense of belonging for me wasn't there when I was in university, but in high school it was. Um, so for me, Movers was this community of people, a safety net, a group of supporting, motivated people who are willing to make change in their world. And and so this was like a social aspect of movers, which gave me the sense of belonging. And I think when you feel the sense of belonging, automatically the motivation to join and stay is there. Right? So this is like the social aspect. But like from a more technical um, perspective, so I was working with SDGs when I was in UNDP and now. Um, so the whole framework of SDGs um, is something that I deeply care about. It's um, like the common language that you said for social entrepreneurship applies to SDGs. We have it even in the slides of the intro to SDGs. <laughs> And um, so for me, it was very important to raise awareness about the SDGs as the whole framework and each of them, because I know for a fact that many people have no idea that this exists exactly like social entrepreneurship, that it's a concept, it's a framework. And it was very important to me to spread awareness about it and to encourage other people to join this movement to join this whole community and induce change uh, so and the framework quite frankly the framework of movers how it works the system is so well designed thanks to you and linka <laughs> that um the system works right so it's very important if if um the whole system, the modules, the way the whole thing works from the step-by-step -step guide to <laughs> the automations <laughs> and everything, registration form. Uh, if, if these things weren't properly designed, I might have wanted to join the community but not take action, right? Because I wouldn't see a point in taking action. But because the framework, the system works, then I think every little action that I take in compliance with this framework is going to add value. So, so that's why even organizing a single workshop is going to have an impact. Doing the slightest thing is going to have impact. So that's from the technical perspective. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I really... 
No, really love it. I think, and it's a very structured answer as well. <laughs> but in three, in very French, you know, SS style, like three parts. Um, but no, I think yeah, the first body. one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sense of belonging, common purpose, and clear system, clear actions to take, clear framework to understand how does your action link to the purpose. I think very interesting. Um, really love what you said that you might have been part of the community because you have sense of belonging but might not have been encouraged to take action it could have been a possibility uh, so yeah because you know I think it's interesting to understand like the recipes of communities how it works I think yeah it's good uh, good summary and Maybe can you share um, part of movers for all the movers listening? Yeah, I don't know one one good memory with movers program. Well, I've enjoyed every every second of being in the movers program from the very beginning and the week of many 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 workshops and <laughs> joining them. Um, but but the highlights were the two pre-event series. So the Youth Collab Summit pre-event series and the Climate Week pre-event series. And this also connects to what I said at the very beginning about liking teamwork now as opposed to earlier in my life and enjoying teamwork more than I enjoy independent work. Because I saw in front of my eyes people joining forces to make something happen. And I think that's the beauty of teamwork. And I think this, like, the philosophy behind it is we become one, right? We're drops of the ocean. We join and we become one. And then we make something happen that each of us individually could not make happen. And that oneness, that um, that is very um, here, right? <laughs> uh, I saw that happen in the Youth Collab pre-event series where people volunteered to host workshops, to co-facilitate with each other workshops, make opening and closing ceremonies, a lot of effort was needed to make that week happen. And it was so last minute. I mean, we had one meeting and we realized we have to start the whole series in two days. <laughs> and, and it happened and the participants liked it. And then it was the climate week with so many interesting events, fireside chats, panels, workshops, and all of that. And it was just... A very memorable, both of them. They were so cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I we can still feel the oneness of the pre just collapse summit group. I think yeah, you built something very powerful there, like all of you, um, and linked to that. I mean, I, I I wanted to come back to a question from Afia. Who's been with us since the beginning? So thank you, Afia. <laughs> <Wow. laughs> Sending a lot of hearts. 
But yeah, I think, you know, uh, so two questions in one, but the first one is, you know, you said, okay, so you have this yes and, you know, philosophy, you try to do a lot of stuff. Recently, you were involved somehow in this high level dialogue on energy thing. <laughs> I feel like, you know, so from you, it's normal. Like you happen, you appear in this random stuff. <laughs> but you know what is, uh, you know, the more you do things, the more you, discover things that you like to do and want to stick to because now you're still doing art still doing music still doing your petition and we'll speak about it you're still now with your you're with movers you have university you know what what is the limit that you can explore <laughs> i think for me that's i mean yeah would love if you thought about it what is your limit now you can you still yes and as much as before And the question from Afia was, how are you so energetic? <laughs> how do you manage so many things so well? So like on time management, you know, uh, any frameworks to handle everything? <laughs> any formula? <laughs> um, um, so to, I, I'll start from the last question. So I'm, I don't know. I, I'm not that energetic in real life. I, <laughs> I, I think I get my energy from doing stuff. As weird as that sounds, the more I do stuff, the more any energy I have. And this is very weird. This is something that has puzzled me for years <laughs> because I, I, um, I was volunteering in an international Olympiad uh, a couple of years ago, two years back to back. And the whole event was so packed. And my role specifically was to handle so many things at the same time and so many people at the same time. I was uh, also ha managing the volunteers. So we started early in the morning. We woke up, I woke up at 5.30 or something, the events, the things that were going to happen started at eight or I don't know, 7.30 or something. But I woke up early in the morning. There was so much work to be done every day and so much running around. Like physically, we were walking, hitting 30K steps or something every day. <laughs> and it was 40 degrees in Tehran. And I had to wear hijab and because of because we were in Iran. And at night, when I went to my room at 1 a.m., I couldn't sleep. I had energy. <laughs> and it was very annoying because I had to get the sleep to be able to do work the day after. But I had so much energy that I didn't know what to do. And... That's something that I learned endogenously. When I do work, I get more energy. But but let's say if it's a weekend, it's actually a week day, weekend day for me right now. But, but if it's a weekend and I sleep till the afternoon and then do nothing, just sit and watch TV shows or something, I'm gonna get tired right away and I won't have energy to do anything. So I get my energy from what I from let's say work but not exactly like work um and for as for how to manage them i just say yes and 
<laughs> as you said. I just, um, I just grasp every opportunity, but I keep a journal. I have like a word file with headings and heading one and heading two. <laughs> heading one is like week, number, blah, blah, and then the days. And under each of them, I list everything that I have to do for that week and for that day. And then I use different colors or highlights to keep track of them so, th so that I don't have to keep track of them in my mind because that's going to be very energy consuming and then eventually one will forget. Uh, but yeah, that journal really helped me. I actually started keeping that journal when I started interning at UNDP because I remember week two, and you can ask Sara about this. I had a call with Sara, and she gave me a lot of information, and I had to take action on many of them. <laughs> I was bombarded. I didn't know what to do. I froze for like two days. Then I realized you have to keep a journal. <laughs> and yeah, that's how I manage tasks. And for the first question, which is the limit, um, I think the greatest limit that we have, the strongest limit that we have in our life is the limit of time. Other than that, I think things are possible. So as long as you can fit things into your schedule with proper planning and not wasting time, um, and you can get some sleep and not harm yourself health wise I think that is the limit but I remember I I had a teacher I had an English teacher he told me something which is something that I tried to keep in mind and let it inspire me so you know the saying the sky is the limit right but what he said was the sky is the limit but not for you and I think that's like another level <laughs> You know, because, you know, we always imagine, yeah, the sky's the limit, but there is something beyond that. And if you're willing to shoot for what's beyond, you automatically uh, let it integrate into your life as well. So that's what I'm trying to do. Do you, do you still waste time? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. <laughs> you still spend Saturdays just doing nothing and watching Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have Netflix, <laughs> but we need a VPN to use Netflix. But yeah, I watched many TV shows. Okay, so she's still a, a normal human being. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I watched them over and over again. Like I've watched Friends, How I Met Your Mother, Blacklist, 24, Prison Break, Big Bang Theory, all of them. I've watched them a thousand times and I still do. <laughs> But do you, do you need to, you know, like sacrifice or trade, you know, like, okay, I watch so many series. Now I have less time to play piano or I, I will sleep less. Or you still manage to fit everything that you want to do, like in one week. Or do you feel frustrated sometimes that you don't have time to do Know, piano acting song movers um 
Yeah, sometimes, sometimes I feel like the limit of time bothers me. <laughs> I wish the day wasn't 24 hours. But it's not like, um, you know, deep in my heart, if I want to be very honest with myself, I mean, I know the truth. Other people might not know the truth, but I know that I'm a lazy person and I'm wasting time. So if I wanted to do more of the activities that I want to do, I would be able to. So for me, I don't know, sometimes I even think that wasting time is a way for me to be on the safe side, if you will. So I'm wasting time to prove to myself that there's still time to do more. <laughs> you know, it's like keeping something for the rainy days, right? Uh, but now, yeah, I I haven't done theater for a year or so. I haven't been to my German classes for a couple of um, years. Um, but I believe if I actually wanted to go to German classes I would be able to I'm bringing excuses for at for time I'm bringing excuses there are online courses now thanks to COVID um no need to stay in the traffic or stuff like that so I have time <laughs> I still have time <laughs> and uh, if I want to play the piano I play the piano if I want to watch uh waste time watching friends I will and it's actually not wasting time. You laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of that, uh, one of your other activities uh, is your change.org petition. Uh, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's pretty much linked to what you experienced at 18, mm -hmm. uh, I guess. Uh, but yeah, could you share a bit more yeah. about it? I just signed this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it's like Iranian students so difficult to study abroad because of the fees first, but also because of the structural barriers that you they cannot even pay the fees because of all the banking restrictions and, and stuff like this. Um, but yeah, we would love to hear more. Yeah, so so the petition I created a couple of months ago. And the reason why I created this was, so when you want to apply to go to a university, you have to pay an application fee, right? And the application fees are usually between, I don't know, $80 to $120, depending on the university. There are lower application fees, but on average, that's the fee. And a couple of years ago, the exchange rate in Iran went up. It tripled, then quadrupled, and now I think we're <laughs> it's above that. Um, so the price of paying an application fee for an Iranian student, considering the current exchange rate, is more than a month's salary of an average worker. So if you want to pay $100, $100 would be the equivalent of $2, two million and something tomans, which is like the one-month salary of an average worker. Um, and that's, so if, let's say, if one person wants to make sure that they get into a university, they're going to apply to five to ten schools. And 
uh, and they have to pay like one year salary <laughs> for just the application fees. And in addition to those, each person has to take an English proficiency test. For instance, IELTS or TOEFL, they're going to cost much more than a month's salary. So just the applications and getting the, then you have to send the test scores, the IELTS or TOEFL test scores to university. Each is going to cost, I don't know, $11, $20 and all of that, I, based on my calculation, <laughs> application process is alone. The application process alone, if it's uh, not a specific case, because, for instance, if you have to take GMAT to go to business school, you have to fly abroad, go to another country to take the exam because it's not taken in Iran. Or if you want to take the SATs for undergrad. Uh, and the whole trip is going to cost a lot of money because of the exchange rate. So it's going to cost about two years of an Iranian's salary to apply, just to apply. And when they apply, they usually have to go abroad to get a visa. So if they want to go to the U.S. or Canada, they, they don't have an embassy. They have all of that. <laughs> so, so, and that's just the application part. When they actually go abroad, they have to pay tuition fees. They have to pay living costs. And the tuition fees alone are going to cost the how much a house is going to cost for a family of three or four. So, uh, so it's a very expensive journey. So that's one reason why to sign this petition. The other one is because of the financial sanctions... Uh, on Iranian banking system, it is not possible to uh, pay money to places abroad. So if you want to pay, first of all, we don't have Visa cards or Amex or any of those. So we only have national debit cards. And we are not linked to PayPal or the online paying systems. And we never was, but there before the sanctions, there was a way to find a broker or an exchange bureau to make the money transfer. But because of the sanctions, it is not possible anymore to make the transfer. So this is not just something for a micro person, for an individual. It's also something that exporters and businesses are facing a couple of uh, weeks ago, I don't know if you heard the news or not, uh, the UN was going to invoke the voting rights of Iran because they hadn't paid the membership fees. And the MFA, Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Iran, said we are in a financial sanction situation. How can we make the payment? And again, for vaccines, the same, you know. Uh, so it's not at the individual level, even at the macro level, the money transfer is an issue. And if an Iranian student wants to pay the application fees, they have to go through illegal channels or they have to have a relative abroad to make the payments for them. And not everyone has that privilege. So, um, so yeah, that's why I made the petition to waive the application fees for Iranian students. Do you remember like, wh when did you have the idea? to write this petition and like, like how, how, you know, like, like you woke up one day, like, okay, I'll write a petition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I saw it in my dreams when I was sleeping. <laughs> no, actually, last, no, in 2019, I went to an open day of University of Cambridge, and I learned about their postgrad programs. And then I was, I was uh, writing to the admissions team and asking them about this. I told them, I explained the situation and said it is not possible to make the payment. Even if someone has the money, just making the payment is not a, officially or formally an option. Legally, it's not. Um, so is it possible to waive uh, the application fees. And I, I know some universities do waive if you email them and tell them of the situation, but officially, uh, no. Uh, so I had the idea in my mind in 2020 because that's when I was writing to them. But but then during COVID, I had some extra time and I started writing the whole intro and the description and and I realized many of my friends wanted to apply. So I had like a whole group, seeing a whole group of people who were going to apply this year and going to face the same issue. Uh, so I realized, yeah, that's the time. <laughs> okay, so yeah, now I, I, I was just checking. So you nearly have 2,000 people who signed. So congrats. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like what a... So what what happened with so I know change.org I, I'm not sure how it functions beyond the petition level but yeah what is your hope to where, where like how do you want to bring this petition to life and as you said you love to bring ideas to life <laughs> so like yeah what are the next steps for you uh, with this petition Yeah so once we get a good number of signatures it is what change.org says is that it is likely that the petition gets picked by the media. But because this is a university thing, it's related to universities and academia, uh, my plan is to use my network of academia students and um, people, the network of my network, to share this with academia abroad. Uh, so be it faculty members, be it students, be it universities, who are in the position to actually make it happen, right? So it is not my decision to waive the application fees. It's the decision of admissions committees and universities. And once, the, once it is proven that this is a significant issue based on the number of signatures, then it is possible to make the case for it. So I'm not a lawyer, but <laughs> can hire one. <laughs> so when you say your network of academia, I mean, it also applies to students or to yeah. anyone who's who's been a student. Like they can, they could also theoretically take the link of your petition and share to their university, right? Yes, like, hey, exactly. FYI. Yes, exactly. I think students, this is not something specific to Iran. I mean, the person who's signing it does not necessarily have to be an Iranian student willing to apply. Because this is an issue, if you think about it, um, 
it's a fundamental issue of rights to education and justice because you know every human being is born with the right to have access to education and everyone is born with the freedom to choose where they want to go but because of the the interventions of human beings through sanctions or i don't know many different things policies or whatever it was that got us to this point people are being deprived of that right right so they're being deprived of access to education they're being deprived of the justice system or the fairness and having access to being an applicant you know you you're not in the same place as another applicant because of these issues so um so for me this is a human rights issue this is not just an specific to iran this is just a case i'm pretty sure if we look in other countries there are other countries who are facing the same issue um but yes yeah, students who are living abroad or who are in other countries who are alumni even they can sign but what they can do is to share with their professors with the universities they went to with the admissions committees of their university so that they make this an option for not just iranian students but any other student who is facing an issue with application fees or the payment making the transfer or it being expensive or something uh, so yeah many different ways to take action okay so everyone please sign the petition and <laughs> pressure your academic institution <laughs> your professors <laughs> no but yeah i i yeah i i mean you know in in we see in the media the financial restrictions on iran and stuff but i never really thought about what would be the impact on individuals and companies and yeah this is actually a structural barrier that even if you are smart enough have good grades enough have enough money you cannot apply so it's yeah it's a big issue so yeah um yeah hopefully you can reach uh 10,000 10 million uh, signatures soon. <laughs> um I'm just checking the time so it's almost been 2 hours so time flies super fast. <laughs> um before I start to ask you the you know ending lifeline question I just wanted to come back on one thing you mentioned. I feel like this part is the Iranian part but uh, you mentioned about being Iranian woman. Um yeah how did that shape what you want to do in life or how you lived your life like through now um so i think if i wanted to um use one word i would say resilience but if i want to elaborate <laughs> i say <laughs> You know, being an Iranian woman is not easy. Being an Iranian generally is not easy, but <laughs> being an Iranian woman is not easy because there are many laws, there are many rules, written or unwritten, which are specific to Iranian women. So, 
they may stem from religion they might stem from i don't know politics or think different things it, it might even not be any of them it might even be cultural it might be the family the families themselves who are um making the social norms that are there for iranian women and i grew up in a family where the traditions the culture was very different from what was the norm in the society so my i think um i grew up more european style than more iranian style but we, we got the elements of persian literature and stuff like that in our house but but i mean from the the way i was brought up was i did not face many restrictions or limitations because of my family but in the society those limitations were there and seeing how that affected the society um made the issue of gender in general very important for me and i saw my friends my classmates who wanted to fight who wanted to uh, oppose the existing social norms or laws or rules but because that was still built in in their minds they couldn't get out of what was pressured into their mind right so it forced many of them it's not imaginable to be a free woman for many of them it's beyond imagination because it's like i i think there was an experiment even done on this if you put a hat a hat made of metal on someone's head their brain is going to shrink or stay small their their brain is not going to grow so that's the issue that everyone is facing in iran but specifically women because of the specific uh standards for women and for me how that became a huge part of who i am is i learned the smart way of dealing with it so i never protested or i never um i don't know uh join any of these demonstrations because they there are significant consequences but but i learned to find my way through the society despite the existing norms so even though i was not facing them at home i was facing them in the society in the university wherever i was and i tried to find the smart way of navigating through them uh but at the same time sort of making the smallest impact or smallest um uh let's say leaving people with a word to think about right uh, so questioning the way they were thinking and because of um all of that i think it it is my mission <laughs> to empower women and not just women but any person with any gender type who is facing standards certain sa- standards and this is also about men i mean men are also fa- fa- facing many standards that women aren't uh also about lgbtq when everyone else so i think um living in that society with those norms having to 
survived them made me resilient, made me strong to echo my voice, to have a voice in the first place and then echo it and then uh, make an impact and then empower other people to be able to do that. And I, I, I hope that so far I have been able to do that with people close to me, but uh, then later on expand to more and more people in other countries too. Yeah, I think it's very, you know, beautiful that you have all this, I would say, because, you know, at one side, it's like a, Anahita is like a thread, a string that we pull. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> no, but, you know, like we, I uh, want to work, I mean, I don't know, you aspire to be a social entrepreneur. Now you work and speak about climate finance. You also, uh, I mean, it, and for me, it's a discovery as well to, I don't think we ever spoke about gender equality before. So I wasn't, didn't really know that it was one of your fight as well. And I think, yeah, everyone is super happy to have heard from you today. You can see, I don't know if you can see the chat from your phone, actually. <laughs> yeah, I can. Okay, yeah, so yeah, so many beautiful messages. Um, but yeah, I can, I can, I mean, I cannot imagine, I'm not a woman, but I can try to imagine already, you know, all the limitations given to women and then to Iranian and then being Iranian women, uh, the intersection. Um, and maybe linked to, to this, uh, can I can start asking you all the ending questions of Lifeline and the one, the deep one that everyone loves, but yeah, how, uh, how would you hope or want people to know you for and remember you for? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think every single person who was on Lifeline <laughs> got stuck here. <laughs> Um, except for Xiaomi, she was very clear, <laughs> but, um, it's very difficult. The three hashtags you mean? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I think, I think, um, regardless of what I do in life, the different things that I do or get involved in, I, as a human being, um, I like to be remembered as a calm, um, and inspiring and um servant let's call it <laughs> so, so someone who's who's serving her, her community or her world sort of but along the way is doing so peacefully and is inspiring other people to 
to be a part of that movement, let's call it, or that being or that soul that I mentioned earlier, the team that is one who is trying to make a change. Yeah. And what are... I mean, I think... I, I gave you the hashtag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I will, I will add the hashtags again and you need to find new words. <laughs> but, you know, about about this, like what are... Yeah, what are... I mean, you always tell me you have no idea yet what you want to do in your life. Oh, lost. But... lost. Hashtag lost. <laughs> But before, what are your next steps to try to reach this? Because you're already doing it, you know. But if you say that, it means that you want to do more. Uh, so what are what's missing in this journey? I think something that is definitely missing is a mentor, right? So I I have thought of getting a life coach. But it didn't work out. I tried one or two sessions and then I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, I, I think a mentor or a, a group of mentors is missing. Uh, and, well, it's not easy to get like one mentor who is investing their time into guiding you. Right. And I mean, even if you want to go to therapy, It takes like one year for the th therapist to get to know you. And that's their expertise, let alone if it's a coworker or a colleague or I don't know, someone else who doesn't know you. First, they have to get to know you. So it's very difficult. And I don't think it's ever possible to have one mentor who is guiding you through life. So what I try to do to sort of skip this step is try to listen to everyone no matter what they say and pick things from the inputs of different people because each person has their own perspective their own way of looking at you they for instance i don't know i i know my closest friends but maybe they haven't ever looked at me in a specific way or they haven't picked uh, something that is a part of my personality because it never came up Uh, so each person, given the circumstances, realizes a different aspect of you. And um, so everyone is potentially your mentor, <laughs> right? And um, so that's one thing. But other thing is, so along the way, if we look at the less philosophical aspects and uh, be on the surface, I have to figure out what I want to do with my studies So I might work for another year and then apply to do my master's or apply for my master's to start next year. I still don't know about that because I still haven't figured out which course I want to apply to. And and then also work-wise, I have to try new areas. So going from UNDP to UNRCO, one of the reasons why... I picked UNRC over UNDP was to explore another area of working in the UN. And um, and maybe I have to switch to another organization or a whole different field to 
explore. But uh, I don't know that. So, so that's some sort of gaining experience that's missing from the next steps. There are some experiences that I still don't have work-wise, um, which are going to help. And, and I think... So the way, if I want to get to your next upcoming questions, <laughs> the way people can support me <laughs> is to share their experiences with me because I can really learn. I might not have to go through that same experience, but um, learning from other people's experiences is also going to help me a lot. Um, yeah, so these are the some of the things that are missing right now. But of course, there's there's more, but I don't know about them yet. <laughs> <sighs> well, I love it when people ask themselves the questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So everyone, please share your stories to Anahita. And I think she's quite flexible if you have any projects to involve her in. <laughs> Just try. She might say yes. Um, but yeah, coming back to the hashtags, um, if you had to, yeah, if you had to select three hashtags, would it be the, the three things that you just mentioned? So calm. Oh, I forgot already. <laughs> <laughs> Um, calm, inspiring, and servant. Okay. Um, and maybe just for a final question, because um, I think many people can relate as well, you know, like being lost. I feel like it's part of our generation, but <laughs> yeah. it's also something we all go through, you know, trial and errors. And the thing is, I, when, People come to me and ask me, you know, I'm a bit lost. So I don't know what to do with my life. I tell them to explore. But I think it's something you do already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, any advice for young people who are exploring, but they feel like they've been exploring for a long time or they still don't know what to do. I don't know from your own experience. What, what would you like to share to the youth? I think this will be a great sum up of what we discussed earlier and connecting to something that I said I was discussing with my uncle a couple of weeks ago, that the decisions we spend so much time on don't have much of an impact in our future, um, but rather the opportunities that come along and we choose to grasp, they can totally change our lives. So my advice for people is, first of all, if opportunities come along, capture them. But more importantly, make your opportunities. So you make your opportunities by growing your network of people, by connecting to more and more people from different areas, different fields, different places. Also, by engaging in activities that randomly come up where you can learn many things and you can make opportunities from them. So usually opportunities come from your network, usually. 
but they can come from social media. They can come from a random post that you see. There's so many things that were random in COVID that I joined. <laughs> and I got to know so many people. If I travel in the next few months, I'm going to meet so many people for the first time in my life. But I got to know them because I joined some random event because they were online because of COVID, right? So, um, so many people were sad because of COVID. But for me, the whole COVID thing was a huge opportunity. And I think this, this mentality of making your opportunities and capturing the opportunities that come along, that's going to completely change your life. I mean, you can, it can completely change the person you are and it can completely shape your future. So that's the advice I give <laughs> to young people because I'm very old. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you are, you've been quoted so many times today. So yeah, Ong Sing, make your opportunities <laughs> by connecting more and more people. Opportunities come from network. And I hate that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think great way to wrap up. And big up to Afian Linka, who stayed with us for the whole two hours and 15 minutes. Wow. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, many people came in, came out. Uh, so hello, everyone who's still here. Um, and yeah, I think for me, it's great that you speak about opportunity. Yeah, I think opportunities are always there, but it's up to you to grab them as you are exploring. And yeah, you are a great example of someone who grabs opportunities and end up in random situations all the time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, thank you so much, Anahita. Uh, you have lots of hearts from Afia. And yeah, again, sign, everyone sign the petition and yeah, just connect with Anahita. She's chill. She will always happy to meet uh, with new people. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Anahita. Congrats for listening until the end of this episode. Of course, to best support Lifeline, you can share this episode to two of your friends and subscribe to the next episodes on any platform. See you next time.